previously in our session on Samuel, we were looking at the impact of sin and some of the consequences that that had in the nation of Israel, especially in individuals, King Saul, King David. And we also begin to bring this forward and look at the effect that sin had on King Solomon, as well as the different kings of the northern and the southern kingdoms, and ultimately with God's people, the nation of Israel. We also looked at a little bit of a contrast in how sin was dealt with when Saul was confronted. How did he deal with his sin? When David was confronted, it was a contrast of Saul in that he repented and found himself turning back toward the Lord. In this session, we want to get into the book of Kings, and we want to begin where we left off with the book of Samuel in thinking about some of the impact that sin had on particular individuals in this book as well as the nation. Solomon, we had talked about earlier, shows us the same pattern that we saw in Saul and David where there's this rise, there's this obedience that brings blessing. And so as they follow God and as they are obedient to him, there is a sense in which they enjoy the blessings that come with that. And then there were turning points. And at these turning points, there is decline in their lives. And we see this in, in the book of 1 Kings with Solomon. Solomon's life is mostly about the building of the tabernacle or about the, about the building of the temple. And the ark is brought into the temple. And this is what we would see as the glory days of the kingdom. They're really at the height of power and influence and prosperity. But when we follow Solomon's life, there are some things that happen that begin to be clear indications that his heart is also turning away from the Lord. Now, generally, people would point to chapter 11 as being that turning point. I believe that we can actually back up to chapter 10, including 11, and we can see a little bit more broadly what happens in Solomon's life. And I like to relate his life to the clear instruction we have in the law back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20. We had looked at that last time because it's in that chapter, in those verses, that we see the regulations regarding kingship. It was not a problem that Israel had a king. The, the problem in Samuel is that they ask for the wrong reasons. And as you go back to Deuteronomy 17, you realize a king was okay. In fact, it's part of God's eternal plan. The, the Messiah is ultimately going to be this king who rules forever. And the earthly king is simply a foreshadowing of this Messiah who's going to come. But what we have in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 17 are regulations that the king is, he's supposed to, he's not to be a foreigner. He needs to be an Israelite. He is not to multiply silver or gold. He is not to multiply wives. He is not to multiply horses, especially from Egypt. And he's to write out a copy of the law so he doesn't go to the left or to the right, that he stays faithful to that. Well, what you find in 1 Kings chapter 10 in verses 14 and following is, is you find that that as, as the king, Solomon is multiplying gold and silver. And, the, and those verses begin with how much weight of gold and silver he's bringing in in a given year. And then it continues to go on through there and it talks about his army and the horses that he has. And so we see down in verse 26, Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horsemen. He stationed them in the chariot cities with the king in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common as stones, and he made cedars as 
plentiful sycamore trees that are in the lowland. Now notice also Solomon's import of horses. Okay, this is the multiplication of horses was from Egypt. And that is in clear rebellion and defiance to what we see back in Deuteronomy chapter 17. And then when you get down to chapter 11 is where you begin to see the multiplication of wives as well. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, Hittite women. Now notice verse two, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, neither shall they associate with you, for they will surely Certainly, turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. He held fast to these women instead of holding fast to the word of God like he should have. And so I think that this is not by accident that the author of these particular, this particular book in these chapters has made a very clear connection with the regulations regarding kingship back in Deuteronomy 17 and the events that we see in Solomon's life here in 1 Kings 10 and 11. There is a strong connection between the two. What he was not supposed to do, we see that he's doing. And what he was supposed to do, that's the writing out of the law and obeying it. We, we don't see any record of that. And so we don't have any details as far as that goes. But we see that there's strong connections here. Solomon is not following the Mosaic law in the way that he's conducting himself in the kingship. There's rebellion. And this sin then has consequences on Solomon. It's soon after this that God rips the kingdom from him. And then as a consequence of his sin, the kingdom is divided into the north and the south. And then we have all the kings of the northern and southern kingdom. Eventually, the northern kingdom is gonna be taken away into exile. And then the southern kingdom is gonna be taken into exile as well. And that's how the book of Kings is going to end. And then we have that 70-year exile period between the books of Kings and Ezra, Nehemiah. That 70 years being the exile for the southern kingdom, we never see the northern kingdom with an official return back to the land, but the southern kingdom does. And I think there's a reason for that. The southern kingdom comes back in the land because we've got this bigger picture of Messiah. The Messiah is going to come out of the southern kingdom. So God brings him back to the land. So we're going to have this continuing lineage going into the land eventually so the Messiah can come. We also see in the northern kingdom a number of different ruling families, whereas in the southern kingdom, it's the constant, it's the one constant ruling family throughout all that time. They go in exile and they come back. God is carefully watching the seed. Genesis 3.15, the seed through Abraham, the seed. And now that seed's very carefully, meticulously being watched over by the Lord himself. But Israel ends up in an extremely bad place. Exile from the land was as bad as it could get. Let me just read these words from Deuteronomy 28. This is the, the chapter where we have the blessings and the curses of living in the covenant. And at the very end, verse 63 in chapter 28, it says, and it will come about that as the Lord delighted over you to prosper you and multiply you, so the Lord will delight over you to make you perish 
and destroy you, and you shall be torn from the land where you are entering to possess it. Moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth, and there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone, which you or your fathers have not known. And among those nations you will find no rest, and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot, but there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing of eyes, and despair of soul. That is the worst thing that could happen to Israel, to lose their land. And that's where the book of Kings is going to end up. Now, the question that we want to entertain is the way in which this material is put together, what is it that the author wants us to see about these events? What is it about what's going on in the nation of Israel right now that leads to such an awful existence for them where they're then scattered amongst the nations and taken out of their own land. And the, the, the reality we want to focus on is idolatry. And the first thing we want to do is look at the books of Kings and Chronicles. There's a lot of overlap between these materials. And we want to focus on idolatry in these books. And then after we are done setting the context, we want to look at idolatry from a broader perspective and try to understand what this means in our lives. But idolatry is a big issue for the nation. We also see this picked up in the New Testament, so therefore it's an issue for the church as well. The book of 1 John ends with keep yourself from idols, flee from idols. 1 Corinthians 10 has a warning about keeping yourself, fleeing from idols. And so we need to understand what is this issue of idolatry. But first of all, let's look at it from the perspective of Kings and Chronicles. And I want to tie together what we've already been learning in these books as we've gone through this particular study. We want to look at the warnings of, for idolatry, and then we want to see exactly what's going on in the situation here. We want to see what kind of gods or idols that Israel is actually stumbling over and having a difficult time with, and we're going to see some of the practice of idolatry. It was there, and then it was gone, then it was there again, but it continues to be the stumbling stone. They actually destroy it from time to time. And then we want to look at what is the problem? Why is this such a difficult um, issue for the nation? What is the principle of idolatry? That's what we want to be looking at during this time. Now, let's remind ourselves of the situation. We can go all the way back thinking about the warnings that were there all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter seven. This is the passage we looked at earlier where God says that he wants them to destroy all the nations. He wants them to get rid of all those people. They are not to enter into covenant relationships. They are not to marry because their wives will turn their hearts away. And so these gods of the land are gonna be a stumbling block. And so Moses is giving these warnings back in Deuteronomy. Chapter seven, we read it earlier. They will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled. So this is what you should do to them. Tear them down, destroy them. Then in chapter 12, we have something similar. This is in regards to the building of the sanctuary. And the concern is that you've got this proliferation of gods in the land. They need to be a, have a central place of worship. And the focus is make sure you watch out. Make sure in verse two of chapter 12, it says that you utterly destroy all the places where the nations whom you 
shall dispossess, serve their gods on the high mountains, on the hills, under every green tree. You will tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, burn their asherim with fire, cut down the engraved images of their gods, obliterate their name from that place. You are to seek the Lord. And so all these other gods need to be destroyed. Later on in Deuteronomy in chapter 16 as well, in verses 21 and 22, it says, you shall not plant for yourself an Asherah of any kind of tree beside the altar of the Lord your God, which you shall make for yourself. Neither shall you set up for yourself a sacred pillar, which the Lord your God hates. They were to have nothing to do with idolatry. Those are the warnings given throughout the book of Deuteronomy. Now we can also back up and look at the book of Leviticus, and we see in chapter 20, in verses two through five, a warning there as well, actually going down to verse eight, but it says, any man from the sons of Israel or alien sojourning in Israel who gives any of his offspring to Molech shall surely be put to death. The people then shall stone him. This would be another God that they could worship and give themselves to. I will set my face against that man. Um, and goes on and talks about all that God's gonna do. Verse six, as for the person who turns to mediums or to spiritists to play the harlot after them, I will set my face against that person. You shall consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. You will keep my statutes and practice them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Many warnings. The difficulty is Israel didn't heed those warnings. So we looked last time in the book of Judges and we saw what happened. They give themselves in marriage to the people of the land and then they begin to turn their hearts toward these idols. We saw that in chapter two of Judges, verses 12 and 13. We can also see that in chapter three, verses three through seven. There's this inclination to move toward these other gods of the land and to worship them, to look to them for life. And that situation that occurs in Judges, Israel never recovers from. Remember the issue there is they did not destroy the people of the land. They did not destroy the gods of the land. And now God's going to allow them to stay there to test them, to see what's in their heart. Israel just doesn't pass the test over and over. Repeatedly, they stumble. And so from that time period in Judges, even up to this time period in Kings, idolatry has been an issue. Now, we've seen revivals along the way, but for the most part, idolatry abounds in the nation of Israel. As we've been working our way through these books, we have seen a reference to a number of the different names of these gods. Baal, this literally means Lord. And this was one of the gods that was a, a stumbling block for them. Exodus 32 talks about the golden calf, probably very much connected to the Baal. He was a bull god, and he was the god of fertility, fertility of crops, fertility of families, an abundance of children, an abundance of crops. And so as the god of fertility, he was seen as the one who would actually make the land and the people fertile. Asherah, we just read a few verses about this particular goddess, the wife of El, represented by these pillars, and that's why pillars were not to be erected because they would be associated with the worship of this particular goddess, the fertility goddess. And again, you see that word fertility there. This would be the goddess who was responsible for making the land fertile and making the womb fertile. And then Molech, the god of wealth. 
One, the one we were just reading about, one of those previous passages, the God of wealth and so money and all the possessions that would come with it. And Ashtaroth, who's the sister of Baal, the goddess of love and war. I mean, if you were going to battle, you wanted to have the goddess of war on your side. If you were looking for the deepening of relationship, you'd want the goddess of love on your side. And so it was this kind of thinking that tripped Israel up. They wanted to be successful in the land. They wanted to be prosperous. They wanted to have an abundance of children. They wanted to have crops that abounded. And when things weren't going well, their tendency was to move away from the Lord and gravitate toward the God of the land who could bring them that prosperity. Now, we always need to keep in mind that what was it that would ever lead to Israel not experiencing phenomenal blessings from the Lord? What would it be that would ever lead them to have a closed womb or uh, crops that failed or drought or blight, whatever it might be? It would be their disobedience. Deuteronomy 28, 29, Leviticus 26 makes that very clear all the time that it is their responsibility to be obedient to the Lord that opens up the storehouse of blessing. And when they are disobedient, that's what leads to the curse. And so anytime there's the lack of blessing, it would be because, of the, be because of the lack of obedience. And so Israel needed to recognize they didn't need to move away from God. In fact, they needed to move toward him. They needed to seek him for his blessing. And this is where Israel got tripped up all the time. In the same way they asked for a king because they felt like God had failed them. They looked to their idols because they feel like God has failed them as well. Now, in the book of Kings, we see the practice of idolatry. I want to look at just a few passages. In chapter 16 and verse 30, Ahab, probably the most wicked king of the land, he did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And it came about as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the sons of Nebat, Jeroboam, another wicked king, that he married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of Sidonians, and went to serve Baal and worshiped him. So he erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab also made the Asherah. Thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. I mean, this is an evil king. He is the one who is supposed to be pointing the people toward the Lord. Instead, he himself is erring and walking away and looking to these other gods. And we see especially Asherah, the fertility goddess here, seeking fertility from her. And Baal, the god of fertility, seeking fertility, turning away from the Lord. If there was any lack of fertility, it was because he was not seeking the Lord rather than because he was not seeking Baal and Asherah. And so we see the practice of it in his life. We could also look at 2 Kings chapter 17. And there's a lot of verses that we could read here. In verses 7 through 18, it tells us why the northern kingdom goes into exile. Why did they fall? And when you read through these verses, you can see over and over, it has everything to do with their allegiance to the Lord, or the lack thereof because their hearts turned away to follow other gods. And so the practice of idolatry happens throughout the nation of Israel. Now, there were times 
when a king would rise up who was a good king and he would destroy these idols. Second Kings 18 verses three to six would be an idea of that or an example of that. Hezekiah, very good king, he did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places, broke down the sacred pillars, cut down the Asherah, he also broke in pieces the bronze servant that Moses had made. For until those days, the sons of Israel burned incense to it. They worshiped it. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. He clung to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments. And so here he destroys all of these idols, but it wouldn't take too long after that till these idols would be built back up again. Chapter 21, in verse three, we have Manasseh. He rebuilt the high places, which Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. And he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah as King Ahab of Israel had done and worshiped all the host of heaven and served them. He even built altars in the house of the Lord. He built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He made his son to pass through fire, practice witchcraft, use divination, and we can go on and on. We see the practice of idolatry. We see the destruction of idolatry, but Israel is not able to recover from this evil in their midst. Now, how do we understand the problem? Here we see Manasseh worshiping the host of heaven and building altars to the host of heaven. There's a, a passage in Jeremiah 44 that helps us understand this even better. In Jeremiah 44, there's a time period where Israel is struggling in their relationship with the Lord. And there's obviously the evidence of worship of other gods. And Jeremiah is going to walk into this and, and deal with this with the people. And in Jeremiah 44, verse 15, it begins here. Then all the men who were aware that their wives were burning sacrifices to other gods, along with all the women who were standing by as a large assembly, including all the people who were living in Pathros in the land of Egypt, they responded to Jeremiah saying, and this is, this is their thinking, as for the message that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we're not going to listen to you. Now, what was Jeremiah's message? It was return back to the Lord. And they say, you know, we're not gonna listen to you. What they're saying is, we're gonna continue to burn incense to all these gods. We're gonna continue to worship them. And we wanna climb into their thinking here. We're not gonna listen to you, verse 17, but rather, we will certainly carry out every word that is proceeded from our mouths by burning sacrifices to the queen of heaven and pouring out libations to her, just as we ourselves, our forefathers, our kings, our princes did in the city of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem. For then, listen, when we were doing this, worshiping these other gods, for then we had plenty of food and were well off and saw no misfortune. This is their thinking. When we were worshiping these other gods, our life was going pretty good. And now you're asking us to worship the Lord, the God of the heavens? I don't think so. Our life is going good now. You see, we will worship whatever makes our life go good, whatever brings us the blessings that whatever brings us what we want out of life. And that's what they're saying. We aren't gonna turn back to the Lord. We've got it good right now. But then it goes on and says, 
since we've been worshiping these gods, everything's been going good. We got food, we're well off, no misfortune. Listen to this, but, verse 18, since we stopped burning sacrifices to the queen of heaven and pouring out libations to her, we have lacked everything and have met our end by the sword and by famine. What they're saying is, Jeremiah, you know what? We gave your God a try. We quit burning to the queen of heaven. We began to try to follow Yahweh again. And I tell you, it just didn't work out for us. The prosperity or the blessing that you say that this God is going to bring us, we haven't seen it. Instead, we've had misfortune. And so what they are evidencing here is that rather than worship God because of who he is, they're going to worship whoever or whatever it is that brings them what they want. They have a heart issue. As long as they have food for their mouth, they'll worship. As long as there's no misfortune, they'll worship. And that becomes the problem. Other gods can provide for them where the Lord had failed. The same issue with the request of a king. They saw the sons of Ammon coming and they said, God's not working for us, so let's set up a king not realizing that the reason things weren't going well for them is their heart was not right with the Lord. And that's what the Lord wants here. He wants a turning of their heart, not just a turning of their hands. Give me, give me, give me. The Lord wants a turning of their heart. This is the principle of idolatry. We will worship whatever or whoever makes our life work better. We will fall down and worship whatever or whoever brings us life. Whatever we can get in this world now, we don't want to wait for it. Whatever will bring it now, we'll bow down to it if it will make life better for us. If it works, then the tendency of humanity is to justify it. You see, that's what they're doing in Jeremiah 44. When we were worshiping the Lord, things weren't working out for us. But since we're worshiping these other gods, things are good. Plenty of food. We've got a lot. No misfortune. And they're justifying their activity. We can rationalize it. We can make it somehow fit into our relationship with God. Somehow make it work into our theology. Even exalt it above God because it works. Okay, It works to make our life better. We'll worship whatever, whoever will somehow make our life better. And God, if you aren't coming through for me, I'll bow the knee here, or I'll bow the knee here, or I'll bow the knee here. Whatever makes our life better for us. That's what kind of heart so much of humanity has. And God wants that heart to be transformed. He wants it to change. He wants us to see him in all of his glory, even in difficulty to stay the course with him. And so he brings Israel in the wilderness into places of difficulty, three days with no water. And why did Deuteronomy tell us he did that? To see what was in their heart. Do they know who he is? If they do, they'll bow down to him. But yet Israel continues to turn away. And so whatever God's worked. And that's why they went after the Baals and the Asherah and the Molex and the Ashtaroth. Fertility, wealth, love, war. These were essentials of life. And they saw these gods as making their life better. If you'll do something for me, I'll worship you. I'll give you my all. Israel was moving their heart in a bad direction, but that forces us 
to think about our own hearts. If that was the heart of Israel, in what way do our own hearts reflect this as well? If Israel struggled with idolatry from the time of entering the land all the way up until even what we see here in Kings and even beyond the exile continues to struggle with idolatry, in what ways do we struggle with it as well? In what ways does idolatry have a grip on us? In what ways does this principle play itself out in our life? I want to move back from 2 Kings and Chronicles. I want us to move back now and look at the bigger picture of idolatry. And I want us to try to tie in everything that we've been looking at so far in these 11 books and see the big perspective because this is the issue. Romans 1 picks this up when it says, rather than worship the creator, they worship the creature. And that's the sin problem of humanity. And that's not just true in Romans 1. It's not just true later on in time. This has been the issue all the way through. And I want us to back up and see this big picture. What is the condition of humanity? When we go back to Genesis 1 through 3, where we see the fall, the separation from God, this choosing to rebel. If we remember, the serpent comes into the garden and he deceives and creates doubt. And ultimately that doubt is about, is God really good? Did God say you can't eat from that tree? Deceiving, placing doubt into the life of you. Did he really say that? You know what? Let me give you the inside scoop on that. God knows that when you eat of that fruit, you have knowledge of good and evil like he does. The, the implication is God is keeping something from you. Is he really good? And Eve is tossing that around in her mind. Is God good? Is he worthy of my worship? Is there something else? If God's not going to work for me, I'll move towards something else because that will bring me life. That's what's going on in the Garden of Eden. And when she takes of that fruit, I want you to think of it in terms of this word. When she takes of that fruit, she is living as if God is not. Because God has spoken. He's creator. He's the owner of everything. He's the sustainer of life. He gave her life. And when she eats of that fruit in rebellion to his word, she is eating as if he is not. He no longer is. I'll take life into my own hands. I'm not certain he's good, but I think I can find a path that will result in the goodness for me. And she begins to move down the path. Ultimately, idolatry is this heart attitude that lives as if God doesn't exist and we make ourselves our own God or whatever it is or whoever it is that brings us a sense of life and we worship it. God's judgment to Adam and Eve was difficulty. And we looked at that, how difficulty is our experience. We all know this, we feel it. Whether it's elements of the weather or broken relationships or relationships that we long to be there that aren't there. We know the impact of sin and what it means to live in a fallen world. We experience this on a daily basis. There's never a day that we are not brought face to face with this difficult world in which we live. And difficulty does two things. It exposes our vulnerability. And we are, when we are vulnerable, we want that to be fixed. We want control. And it also heightens our thirst. And when we're thirsty, we want satisfaction. We want that thirst to be quenched. And we don't necessarily want to wait on God. We'll do whatever it takes to bring about that control or do whatever it takes to satisfy that thirst rather than trust and obey and wait eagerly. Ultimately, 
That is our idolatry. And this difficulty in which we live in this world is the constant battle of all humanity. What are we going to do in the midst of our pain? Are we going to turn toward God and wait on him? Or are we going to find an immediate solution, a quick fix? Are we going to respond in worship to the living God? Or is our response going to be to demand relief from whatever or whoever we can find in this world? That's the condition. That's the world in which we live. And then we get to chapter four of Genesis. We see the foolishness of humanity. Here we are. Adam and Eve have fallen. Now they've got children. We've got Cain and Abel. And God comes down to Cain because there's a little problem here. God comes down to Cain and says, Cain, hey, wait a second. You're not thinking clearly. I know what's in your heart. And Cain refuses to yield himself to the Lord. He begins to live in a different way. He's got his own plan. And rather than heed the word of God, whatever that advice was that God gave him, rather than heed that word, Cain begins to go down his own path. I've got a plan. I've got a way. I don't like what my world feels like right now, but I can fix it. I will destroy my brother. I'll get rid of him. That'll solve my problem. I'll murder him. And so he takes care of life in his own way rather than living as if God exists, which I think would have been for Cain to cry out to God, God, help me. My heart's in a bad place. I'm going down a path I don't want to go down. Instead, he continues down that path and lives as if God is not. We will worship whatever brings us relief. We know difficulty. We long for relief and we'll worship whatever it is that brings it regardless or whoever it is that brings it regardless. And so this is, this is the context in which all of us live. And what we see in Kings and Chronicles is the, the manifestation of all of this in the nation of Israel. They turn away from God and turn toward their idols. Turn away from God and turn toward their idols. Romans 1, as we mentioned earlier, really depicts this. To worship the creature rather than the creator ultimately, I think, means to live as if God is not. We take God out of the picture. We destroy him, remove him from reality, and then find our own way. Whatever makes us feel good, whatever works for us. Well, there's two passages in particular that I want us to look, for, look, look to to understand what's going on here in Kings as well as to understand our own lives. I want us to turn to Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah chapter 50, very important passage on idolatry. And we look especially at verses 10 and 11. And it says this, Who is among you that fears the Lord? that obeys the voice of his servant, that walks in darkness and has no light. Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with firebrands, walk in the light of your fire, and among the brands you have set ablaze, this you will have for my hand, and you will lie down in torment. Here we have two different sets of people. Both of them are in darkness. They're living in darkness. They know the darkness. And I want to just call this the pain, 
the difficulty, the turmoil, the anguish of life. It's dark. The psalmist says, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, this darkness, the uncertainty. There's two groups of people living in that uncertainty. And the one who trusts in God will clearly place his faith there in darkness and wait. Whereas this other group doesn't like the darkness and doesn't like waiting and they light their own fire. The principle here is in darkness, in the pain and the difficulty of living in this world, humanity makes its own light. They'll do whatever it takes to bring light back to their world. They don't like the darkness. They don't like their situation. They'll do whatever it takes to make their situation what they want it to be. Whatever or whoever brings this about will receive the worship of humanity. Now, what does this look like? What does it mean to make a light instead of trust in darkness? What does it mean to make a light? I want us to think of this in terms of ultimately, I think when the New Testament refers to the deeds of the flesh, that these are the best evidence of our idols. In Colossians chapter three, in verses five through 10, we see one such reference. Colossians chapter three, verses five through 10. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to, there's our word, idolatry. The deeds of the flesh are nothing short of idolatry. And the text here says you once walked in these when you were living in them, but now you put them all aside. That's not you anymore. You've got your new self here. These things amount to idolatry. And so when we're living in darkness and we've got a certain situation in life and we can feel the difficulty, we can feel the pain of it, Whatever it is that we do at that point will evidence our heart. Do we wait for the Lord or do we do something that's gonna get us out of the jam? What does this look like? What do, what do I mean that these deeds of the flesh that are referred to in Colossians 3 are idols? What does this look like in our lives? For instance, addictions. Addictions abound in this world. And the, the essence of it is I don't like how I feel, so I'll change it now. I'll do something that will make me feel better. I'm gonna live as if God is not. I will indulge myself in the flesh, fleshly lusts of this world. I'll do whatever it takes to make myself feel better because I'm God and I wanna feel better. I deserve it. I'll live as if he doesn't exist or even stealing. I don't like my situation. I don't like how little I have. So I'm gonna change it now. I'll just take what's not mine. I'm not gonna live in this darkness anymore. I'm gonna light my fire. I'm gonna get myself things. That's lighting a fire or lying. We find ourselves in a jam and it's darkness and, and there we are. If the truth comes out, we'll be exposed and we don't want that to happen. Rather than entrust ourselves to God in the midst of that darkness, we're gonna light our own fire. So what do we do? We lie. That'll change the situation. I'll give false information. I'll protect my identity. I will make my life work. I tell the lie and it works. Wow, this is good. This is lighting my fires. We can go down through the deeds of the flesh. Each one of them find a person in a situation that we might call darkness where there is difficulty 
where there is vulnerability and thirst and they don't want to wait on God in that darkness. They're going to light a fire. They'll get themselves out of the jam and they'll worship whatever it is or whoever it is that gets them out of that. As I was thinking through some of these items, I also happened to be confronted with the book of Job. And it's interesting where Job goes in chapter 31, this whole idea of living as if God is not. What Job is doing in chapter 31 is he's, a, he's asserting his integrity. He's a man of integrity and he wants to, de- wants to defend that. He wants to show that he has lived in a way that's honoring and pleasing to the Lord. In verse five, if I have walked with falsehood, then let God do something about it. Verse nine, if my heart's been enticed by a woman and I didn't live properly, let God do something about it. If I've despised the claim of my male or female slaves, if I didn't treat them with respect and treat them properly, if I've kept the poor from their desire, then God, please judge me. If I've seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, then please, if, if I've done anything, lifted my hand against the orphan, if I've done any of this, please let it be exposed. And he goes on and continues to talk about so many different situations. If I put my confidence in gold and called fine gold my trust, if I've gloated because my wealth was great, if I looked at the sun when it shone and the moon its splendor and my heart became enticed to worship, Job is defending his integrity. And it's amazing how he ends that whole thing. If I would have done those things, he says, listen, that too, any of those would have been an iniquity calling for judgment for, what's his reason? I would have denied God above. Job says, if if I were to do those kind of things, what is Job saying? I would have denied him. I would have been living as if God is not, taking life into my own hands, making it work, living for these kind of things, denying that he exists. Idolatry is nothing short of living as if God does not exist and bowing down to the gods we fabricate on our own. We are called to put to death these deeds in the same way Israel was called to put to death idolatry, to put those deeds to death. We may not struggle in various cultures with bowing down to idols. Other cultures, that may be a big battle. But we do struggle with deeds of the flesh which amount to living as if God does not exist, making my life work, getting what I want, when I want it, now, giving me control in my vulnerability, satisfying my thirst, living as if God is not. And we're to put those things to death in Colossians 3, those things which amount to idolatry. We are to put them to death. Why? Because God is. Because the great God is is and he's seated on his throne and he's in control over the affairs of this world and we are to live as if he is because he is and we put those things to death we don't bow down to our idols he is and this god who is calls us to entrust ourselves to him no matter how dark it might be we trust him we give ourselves to him because he's the god who is even when it's dark So the psalmist says in Psalm 23, verse four, yea, though I walk through the valley, the shadow of death, the darkness, I'm there, I fear no evil. Why? 
Because God is with me. Because God is. You see, we can live in darkness because he is. In 1 Peter 4, it's a book written about suffering. And what is to be the response of the child of God in the midst of all this? You entrust yourselves to a faithful creator and do what's right. Now, why can someone do that? Because God is. What is the other option? It's to run from everything that's causing your persecution or to destroy your persecutor. And God says, no, you entrust yourself to me and do what's right because I am. In James 1, 2, it says, you count it all joy when you encounter various trials. How can someone do that? It's because God is. It's because God is. Why could David, having Nathan look him in the eye, confronting him on a sin, how could David ever get to a point to acknowledge his sin and repent? It's because God is. Because he's a merciful God. Because he's a God who wants to be in relationship with people. And he wants our hearts turned toward him. We are to live as if he is. And he's not a God to simply be feared and run away from. He's a God to engage with and give our hearts to and follow after. Because he indeed is life. In our humanity, idolatry can get a grip on us. And in darkness, we will do whatever it takes to create light rather than turn to the living God, rather than living as if he is, we create our own gods. There's one more passage I want us to consider in light of this, and that's Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44 is another powerful passage on the whole concept of idolatry. And we don't have time to look at the whole passage, but really from verse nine all the way through verse 17 we've got a powerful presentation of the foolishness of idolatry. But again, what we see in this chapter, in difficulty, humanity looks for its own deliverance. And you can see that throughout this passage, but I want to focus on one verse. It talks about the making of an idol. And it says at the end of verse 17, and this is what I want to focus on, he prays to it, this is the idol, he prays to it and he says, deliver me for thou art my God. Deliver me, for thou art my God. That's ultimately the essence of idolatry. Right there, you can underline it in your Bibles. It is the essence of idolatry. To look not to God, to live as if he is not, and look away from the creator to the creature and say, deliver me, for thou art God. You don't exist. I will look here for deliverance. That's the essence of idolatry. Deliver me for thou art my God. You look not to God, the creator, but to created things, living as if God is not. Perhaps it's the deeds of the flesh that will deliver me. I'll bow down to lying. I'll bow down to immorality. I'll bow down to cheating. I bow down to these things because they deliver me. I worship them. That's what it means to be an idolater, to live for these things. And again, when you consider this particular thinking, deliver me for thou art my God, the call of God is clearly for us to wait on him, the God who is, to wait on him. When we're looking for deliverance, we wait on him. And in the difficulty of life, when we feel vulnerable, we feel thirsty, we're always looking for deliverance. And God says, wait on me. I am the God who is. Wait on me. I will deliver. There are so many powerful passages in the Old Testament that, re, that 
give this whole sense for us to understand. In Isaiah 40, in verses 29 to 31, he gives strength to the weary. And to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Those who wait for the Lord will be renewed. See, that doesn't make sense to us. In the midst of whatever groaning or difficulty or darkness or um, vulnerability or thirst that we have, we want to make something happen. The Lord is our deliverer. And he says, wait for me. In Psalm 27, Psalm 37, a number of different Psalms, it's wait on the Lord, wait on the Lord, wait on the Lord. Why? Because he is. And not only is he, but he's trustworthy as well. In Jeremiah 17, Jeremiah 17, verses five through eight, this is what the Lord says. Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind, creatures, and makes flesh, creatures, his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord, living as if he is not. For he will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. And I'm gonna add here, even in darkness, and whose trust is the Lord. For he will be like a tree planted by water. There's that Psalm 1 imagery that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaf will be green. And it will not be anxious in a year of drought, nor cease to yield fruit. That's the promise of God. In Jeremiah 9, verses 23 and 24, this is what the Lord says. Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boasts of this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things. That's what we trust in, a God who is, to know him and to live in light of his glory. And so when we pull back and look at idolatry, we recognize there are reasons why people go in this direction. They're in the difficulty of life. They feel the pain. They feel the turmoil. They feel the darkness. And they're frantic. They're, they're moving whatever direction it is that will work for them. And so in Jeremiah 44, they say, uh, no thanks to God. He's not working for us. But to the queen of heaven, we've got plenty of food now. We'll worship this. Oh, no thanks, God. Truth telling doesn't work for me. But when I lie, oh, wow, things really work out good. And God, trusting you for all the things I have, not, that's just not gonna cut it. But cheating, oh, I get so many benefits from that. Or God, I know that you want purity, but immorality, oh, I feel so good. Or addictions, God, please, I, I don't wanna just be content. I just wanna go, 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 because when I go, 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 and I get, 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 oh, it's so wonderful. That's idolatry. That's living as if God is not in bowing down to the creature rather than creator. And we aren't talking simply about pagans. Even in Christ, we can stumble foolishly 
into idolatry and live as if God is not. And we turn away. We've got to own this. It's got to be repented of. We must turn away from idols and quit living as if God is not. That's what Israel's doing in the book of Kings. When the kings turn their heart away from the Lord and they begin to worship the idols of the land, they're living as if he is not. And as we step back from the book of Kings, what does the Lord want us to see? He wants us to see the futility of living in that kind of way. Put that together with the book of Samuel. Anytime we depart from the ways of the Lord, we end up in emptiness. We end up in a foolish place. We end up in a place that is just empty and void of life and meaning. Sin has consequences. It's no way to live your life. Idolatry has consequences. It's no way to live your life. And the author wants us to see it. He wants to see the pain of all of that, the emptiness of all that, the futility of all that. And he wants our hearts to turn toward the Lord because it's only in turning toward him that we experience the goodness of life. It's only in turning toward him that we experience blessing and notice, even as Isaiah said, it's not that darkness disappears. It's not that difficulty goes away. It's not that there's no more turmoil and anguish or persecution in your life. This is it. You've got God. And that's where life is found. Better to have God and die of thirst in a wilderness than to be back in Egypt with pots of meat. That's what God wants us to see. Because when we've got him, we can trust whatever he does in our lives because he's a good God. He's a God who watches out for his own. But he doesn't make life about you or about me. It's about his plans. It's about his purposes. And if he wants me to die for his purposes, then I need to gladly do that. If he wants you to die for his purposes, you need to gladly be willing to do that because you get him. And blessed is the man who has him rather than the one who foolishly lights their own fires, these little fly fires instead of the source of light. That's what we get. We get it all. And so God wants us to learn these lessons from the book of Kings. Israel doesn't. And so at the end of Kings, the southern kingdom also goes into exile and it's a, it's a desperate time for them. The gloom of anguish is what it's called in the prophets. But God's still got a plan. He's still gonna move it forward. Again, humanity's not gonna stop him. Sin is not going to stop him. God's got a plan. He's gonna move it forward. We're gonna see that in Ezra and Nehemiah. The plan's not gonna be fulfilled there, but it's gonna continue to move forward to the coming of Christ and the coming of his kingdom.